glad you're here this morning. I'm glad you're joining us. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are working through a series on the book of Hebrews. So if you have a Bible, you can get ahead of us. If you don't, don't worry. It's all be on the screen here for you. Um, Hebrews 9 is where we're going to be. Um, but I do have to say, since we got the slide up here and you just kind of see Cheryl talk about it, um, if you want to get connected here, if you want to be a part of this community, if you want to find your place, if you want to find a way to serve, if you want to really understand what your faith is about, or you've been following Jesus for a long time and you just really want to grow, um, uh, uh, Rooted is the place that you want to get plugged in. And you can join Rooted by texting Monmouth to the number 97,000. A little menu comes up, um, and that would be great. I do, do have to just say, since she was just on there, Cheryl was doing the Rooted video. Um, you know, Cheryl was kind of like, and she told us, right? She's like, oh, I was kind of skeptical. I didn't really know. You know, I've been going to church for a long time, all that kind of stuff. Um, that was just a year ago that we did that. You know who, you know who's now um, running our Rooted program? Cheryl. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Um, so whether you've been going to church forever or, or you're brand new, we'd love for you to get plugged into Rooted. It's it's awesome. Okay, so we've been going through the book of Hebrews, okay? And we're into chapter nine, so we've made a good chunk, and we are going to have a historic moment today, okay? We are going to cover 10 verses of the book of Hebrews. Oh, be still my beating heart. Um, I, I, actually, it's kind of, we're gonna skip three verses, so we're actually I'm gonna do seven, but it's still gonna be impressive, okay? Um, we're in Hebrews 9, so we've, we've gone through a lot. And so if you're if new here in the last couple months and, and you haven't been kind of going with this, here's the big gist of Hebrews, right? That Jesus is better, right? He begins all the way back in the beginning and he says Jesus is better than the angels, the messengers, he's a better messenger. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the promised land. And we're in this section where he's saying Jesus is better than the temple, now, now, here's the thing, or the tabernacle, they're kind of interchangeable. The tabernacle, the temple was the fulfillment of the tabernacle. Um, the, 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 here's the thing, though, when he's, when he's talking, okay? Um, a lot of times we'll say Jesus is better, and we're making them a competitive thing, right? Like, oh, the temple or Jesus, the temple or Jesus, the tabernacle or Jesus, the law or Jesus, right? Um, that's not the gist of what the book of Hebrews is trying to tell us. The book of, the book of Hebrews is trying to tell us that that. Those things were good, but Jesus is better than those things. Jesus is all those things and more. In fact, last week, if you were here last week, we talked about that the tabernacle, the temple, was a shadow, was a copy. It was trying to point us to the ultimate true reality in Jesus. And so today we're going to look, um, the writer of Hebrews, he, he's writing to an audience, uh, a bunch of Jews, that are scattered all over the Roman Empire. And if you don't have to know a lot about, the Roman, about uh, Roman history to know the Roman Empire was a violent empire. Um, there's one story, one historian recalls a story where um, there was a group of people in a city and they tried to rebel against Rome, which in hindsight, we would all agree was a bad idea. And they rebel against Rome, and Rome just comes, I mean, the most powerful nation, most powerful military the world had ever seen at that point, comes crushing down on this one little city, and they kill tons of people. And then the men that they capture, okay, this is the violence of the world that this audience lives in. The men that they capture, the men that survive, they take and they crucify them along the road that leads into the city. And the historian tells us that there were men crucified for miles into the city. And they left those bodies there for months 
so that every single person who walked into that city would remember what happens to those who rebel against the Roman Empire. This was a dark, violent place. And on top of that, they were Christians. They were getting persecuted. They were getting arrested. They were, they were getting arrested and beaten by the Roman Empire. And they were getting arrested by the Jews, right? They, they're fellow brothers and sisters that they had been. And they are a, a, a group that is exhausted. They're a group that's tired. And they're a group that I imagine like many of us, right? They heard the story of Jesus. They were waiting for this Messiah. They were waiting for one that would come and conquer and he'd sit on the throne and he would be the Messiah and the Savior and, he, and Jesus dies and, and, he, and he's buried and he raises again and he sends up into, into heaven. And I've got to imagine, just like so many of us, they were like, now's the moment. Jesus is gonna fix it all. And then they get up on Monday and they go to work. And the world's still busted. And they journey through life. And people they love still get sick and still die. And there's still oppression and there's still violence. And they hear about wars. And they hear about their friends getting arrested and drug off into jail. And there are people that are tired, that are tired. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage them. I don't know if you've ever felt tired in this life. Because the truth is that life is hard and the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage him, no, 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 hold on, because the temptation they have, you know, we always look back with rosy-colored glasses. The temptation is to look back and go, well, you remember when we just had the law and the prophets and the temple and, and, and Moses? Remember how easy life was then? And he's trying to plead with him, no, 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 those things are good, but Jesus is offering you something better. So Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9, here's where we are, okay? Hebrews 9, um, verse 5. Let me just read Hebrews 9, verse 5 to set up a little bit, and then we're going to go back to verse 1. So it says this, but we cannot discuss these things. We're going to look at these things in detail now. The good news for you and for me is we can. So we're going to go back, we're going to go back, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 9, verse 1, and we're going to look at these things. Now, the writer, one of the things that I think is the writer of Hebrews um, explains the imagery and the significance of different parts of the temple to a Jewish audience, and, and he's basically taking a shortcut, and he goes, but you guys know about that, right? Which, 2,000 years later, thousands of miles away, removed culturally so monumentally significantly, it's not something we could say. We, we don't know the significance of all these things. So we're going to spend a little bit of time today. We're going to look at some of the images. Nothing's on accident in Scripture. We're going to look at some of the images that are created through the tabernacle, through the temple, and maybe see if it says something about this, this broken, hard, messed up world that we journey through today. So here you go. You ready? Here it is. Hebrews 9, verse 1. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were lampstands and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Okay, so just so you can visualize what's going on here, um, around the tabernacle and eventually around the temple, there were, if you think of it, they were rectangles mostly, but you think of it kind of like concentric circles, right? And there were circles that you were allowed to come into as long as you qualified to certain things. So, for example, the first big circle was the courtyard of the Gentiles, right? Which, despite a very few number of us, would be us. Gentiles are non-Jews, okay? And, and in, that, in that courtyard, anybody could come in. And you could come in, and it would talk about Scripture. Sometimes if you read, like, in the book of Acts, it'll say they were a God-fearer. 
right? They weren't Jewish, but they knew that something special was going on amongst these people and with this God, and they respected and feared. And so you could come in this circle, but if you were a Gentile, that was as far as you could go, right? And then there's another circle, the courtyard of the men, right? If you were a Jewish man, you could come in a little closer. You could get a little closer to the priests. You get a little close to the religious ceremonies. You could get a little closer to the temple. And there were these more and more concentric circles of more and more restricted places. The, 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 the most restricted place is actually what we're going to look at today. It was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. Um, in Hebrew, this is not important for you, but this is for free. Okay? Um, in Hebrew, they didn't have exclamation points. right? They didn't have grammar. <laughs> I mean, they didn't have punctuation. They had grammar. They didn't have punctuation. Okay, um, which makes reading Hebrew really difficult. Not only do they read from right to left, but there's no periods. It's just words. And then you got to guess where the sentence ends, right? Um, but if they wanted to emphasize something, they didn't have an exclamation point, right? And so what they would do is they would just repeat it. You, you've seen it. We translate sometimes. We'll say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? You've seen that? Because it's come from this tradition of just saying the word over and over again as a way of saying, this is really important, and so in the Old Testament, when we talk about the most restricted place, the tightest circle, the, 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 the most holy place, they called it the, if you were to literally translate, they'd say, it's the, the holy holy, right? The most holy place. In that place, which we're going to look at today, in that place, the high priest was the only one who could go into that place. It was the most restricted concentric circle. And it was um, the, the, the dwelling place of God. It was the, where, it was the closest place where the fabric of heaven intertwined with the fabric of earth. It, it was the place where God's presence uniquely from all of the rest of creation was in that space, right there, and the high priest, once a year on Yom Kippur, could go into that holy of holies. But outside the holy of holies, the step out of the concentric circle, there was the holy place, right? And this place, a priest from the tribe of Levi, you had to be from that one family, you had to be serving as a priest at the time, could go into that part of the temple twice a day. Once in the morning they would go, and once in the evening they would go. Right? And so this is what he's talking about here. It's one of the most restricted places. But the place we're going to look at today, if, you, if, you, if we go on, it said this. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. This is a place that only the high priest could go to once a year, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. You know about the Ark of the Covenant, right? Um, you've seen the movies? We've all seen them, right? Um, uh, ready, there we go. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. We're going to talk about all these things in a minute. Above the ark, there were cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. Now, um, uh, this, you might be more familiar with it. Your translations are over time in church world. If you hear this phrase, you might be more familiar with this phrase um, that it's referring to here, uh, <laughs> referred to as the mercy seat. Right? You might have heard that phrase every once in a while in church, the mercy seat, um, the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. But we're going to. we got a chance. We're going to take a look at them. Okay? So here's the things you'd find in the most holy place. Okay? The first one is the altar of incense. It is just what you think it is. There's some coals, and they would put altars, they would put incense on it, and every morning, every night, they would put these things on. And here's what would happen, okay? I don't know if you've done this before. If you take a lot of coals, 
and you take a lot of incense, and you get a small tent, okay? Imagine your little two-person tent that you use camping, okay? If you started a fire inside there, what's going to happen? That place, well, first of all, that's a bad idea. It's going to catch on fire. But it's going to fill with smoke. And so when you would walk into even the holy place, and then you'd come into the holy of holies, the place would be packed full of smoke. There's some, um, there's some poetic uh, renderings, there's some artistic renderings that, that imply, we're not sure that it probably was actually really, it, maybe it was a bit of an exaggeration, that there were times when there would be so much smoke pouring out of the tabernacle that you would see smoke just billowing, just, just like a huge smoker, like, like a God-sized smoker just billowing white smoke out of this, out of this tent. So here's the question, right? When you think of the Bible, when you think of the Old Testament, when you think of stories, is there something that smoke might mean? Uh, there's a couple, right? Maybe you think of um, the Exodus. You remember the Exodus? You remember they're, they're wandering around the wilderness. This is where the tabernacle begins. They're wandering around the wilderness. Do you remember how they're guided around the wilderness? By day, uh, sorry, by night. They're guided by a pillar of fire. By day, they're guided by a pillar of cloud or a pillar of smoke. This, this image of God's presence being in the smoke was, was a very familiar image used all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, um, Isaiah, there, there's a prophet named Isaiah. He writes this huge book. It's fascinating. It's beautiful. It, it has this beautiful foretelling about Jesus in Isaiah 53. It's this magnificent thing. And it begins with this, um, this, uh, this, this dream he has, this vision he has. And he comes into the temple of the throne room of God. He comes in the throne room of God. And God, it, if you read the text, it actually, it doesn't even say that God's, in, it says that the train of his robe, that God is so big and so mighty, just the like back portion of it fills the whole room. But it also gives this image of the whole room is filled with, with smoke, with smoke. Every Jewish person knew when they would see the smoke billowing out of the temple, when they would smell the incense, because you imagine they're out in the wilderness at this time as they're building the tabernacle, and day in and day out, from the moment they wake up until the moment they go to sleep, this altar of incense is burning, and depending on the direction, the wind, maybe miles away, you could smell the incense even in the moments you couldn't hear it, I mean, when you couldn't see it, and it'd be a reminder to them of God's presence, that he's there, that even in the midst of an arid wilderness, alone they feel sometimes, completely 100% dependent upon God in a broken and messed up world, a people without a land, a people without an identity, that they would smell every morning when they would wake up, they would smell the presence of God with them. That as they look to the tabernacle, they would see the billows of smoke puffing out and be reminded of the presence of God. The altar of incense sat in the most holy place to be a reminder to them of God's presence with them. Now, the next thing it tells us that was in the, the, the temple, I mean, in the uh, tabernacle, was the, the golden covered Ark of the Covenant, right? The golden Ark of the Covenant. Now, here's the thing about the Ark of the Covenant. Um, despite what you saw in Indiana Jones, which, you know, was obviously very historically accurate, um, can we just, can, to pause, can we just agree like that we should have no more Indiana Jones movies? Can we just retire the whole concept, 
right? Can, how about this? How about this? We're going to make a pact today, okay? How about this? If they come out with another Indiana Jones movie, we're just going to act like it doesn't exist, okay? We're just not going to go. We're going to stop ruining the legacy of Indiana Jones, okay? Uh, not important. Here we go. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant. It was a box, okay? And here's the thing about the box. We're going to talk about it a little bit later. It's important. The box doesn't actually have a lid, okay? The box doesn't have a lid. Now, there's something that sits on top of the box, but it's not the box of the Ark, Okay? And here's another thing. The ark, um, in, in biblical terminology, there's a reason why we use the word ark, but an ark is actually just literally a box. So like when we talk about Noah's ark, right? An ark is not a boat. An ark is a box. Um, it just doesn't sound like as magnificent to be like, da-da-da, Noah's box, right? It doesn't have the same kind of ring of majesty to it, right? And so this is literally the box of the covenant, right? The box of the covenant. And inside the box of the covenant are three things. And these three things are the things that define what it means to be in relationship with God. What it means to be his people, to be in his community. And so you see, right? You see there's three things, okay? Um, the first one is this, the jar of manna. Okay, so inside the Holy of Holies, they have the altar of incense, it's burning smoke, it's filling, you're smelling it, it's burning your eyes, you're seeing the, just the thickness, you can feel it, it changes the way you breathe, God's presence is in that place uniquely, and then inside the center of it is this gold box, and placed in it are three things that remind you of the kind of God, the kind of relationship you have with your God. And the first one is manna, you know the story of manna. Right? They, they go out in the, the wilderness. Well, <laughs> skipped a lot of story. It's not like they're just like, hey, it's a nice weekend. You want to go out in the wilderness for a little while, right? They're in Egypt, they're in captivity. God delivers them, takes them through the Red Sea. They end up out in the wilderness. And uh, as people do, they get hungry. And when people get hungry, they get angry. And they get annoying, and they get annoyed. And God, in, in, in a place in the wilderness, in the desert, there, <laughs> there's no Whole Foods, there's no Costco, there's no Walmart, right? There's nothing. And so God provides for them manna. Uh, kind of a loose translation of the word. It just literally means, um, yeah? means like, what is it? Bah, we don't know, which is a weird thing to call your food to be like, hey, you want some? Uh, I have no clue what this is. Um, I have a theory, okay, um, about manna, uh, um, most theologians disagree with me, but they're wrong, and Jesus will teach them later. Um, here's my theory. Okay, if you've been around here, maybe you've heard this. Um, I think I know what manna was. I think manna was Krispy Kreme. It says that manna is light and fluffy and sweet. Right? I mean, that sounds like it. And here's the, here's, it's a miracle that, that Krispy Kreme showed up every morning, but the real great miracle is that people wandered around eating Krispy Kreme for 40 years and nobody got fat. And let me tell you, if I know nothing else about heaven, if we get to do that, I'm all in. Okay? But there's this, this, this provision every single morning. They wake up. They don't toil. They don't plant. They don't work the field. They do nothing. They wake up. And God provides for them. And inside the box that reminds them of the kind of relationship they have with God, the first thing that the writer of Hebrews reminds them of is, a, is the God's provision. <laughs> but the center of what it means to be part of God's people is to be a people who are dependent upon God's 
provision, his goodness to provide for them. The second one is Aaron's staff. Right? So we got manna, provision, we got Aaron's staff. There's a story in the Old Testament, there was a little bit of an upheaval, there was a little bit of confusion, and, and tribes were kind of fighting with each other, and God said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I want the head of every tribe to lay out their staff, and then I, because I am the authority in this family, I am the king of these people, I am the God of this place, I will decide who is going to be my priest, who is going to serve me in the priesthood, and, and they all lay out their staffs, and Aaron's staff, all dead wood, Aaron's staff buds, it produces fruit in one single night. And so at the, the, the second thing Aaron's staff placed in the, the thing was to remind the people of who's in charge. God didn't have to justify himself. He didn't have to explain himself. He didn't have to say, well, I chose Aaron because I really like the way his hair's cut. I chose Aaron because he's really good at this. That it was a reminder to them that God is sovereign, that he is in control, that he is over all things. And that part of what it means to be the people of God is to live in submission to who he calls us to be. And to live under the shelter, when we live under his, uh, under his authority, we live under the shelter of his protection. What was the purpose of a staff? You read it all throughout the Psalms, was to protect the sheep. That we are to be reminded that we have a God who comes and walks with us to provide us protection in wilderness life, in vulnerability and brokenness, that he is our protector. So we have, we have provision, we have presence, we have protector. And then the last one um, is, is this, the stone tablets of the covenant. Um, the stone tablets, you probably have uh, an image, right? If you're of a certain age, you remember Ten Commandments, right? Charlton Heston holding up the Ten Commandments, Blah! right? Here's a funny thing I never really understood about that picture. Um, did you notice how the Ten Commandments are numbered? With Roman numerals? You realize Rome didn't come around for another thousand years? <laughs> it says in the Old Testament that God chiseled them out with his own finger, and I can just imagine the conversation. He's like holding them up there, and they're like, what's that? I don't know, but it'll make sense in a while, right? And they're holding up, right? But a lot of times, if you're not old enough, maybe Prince of Egypt, right? You remember? Prince of Egypt, Ten Commandments. Anyways, um, the, the Ten Commandments, a lot of times, this is, this is just for fun. A lot of times, Ten Commandments, we envision them as like five commandments on one hand and five commandments on the other. Um, historians actually tell us, um, and biblical scholars tell us, that almost for certain, that's not at all how it looked. Um, in fact, if anything, if they were split in any way, it would be five would be on the front and five would be on the back, and the other tablet would be the exact same. Because in ancient Near Eastern cultures, they didn't have wax seals. They didn't have notaries. They didn't have digital copies of things. So what they would do is they would, if they were making a contract, if you and I were making a contract with one another, we would, we would take something that was unchangeable, stone, pottery, something like that, and we would carve the contract into it. And then we would make an identical copy. You and I would both make an identical copy. And we would mark on that, my mark and your mark, both of them. And then I would hand you one of those copies and I would take the other one, right? So then you would have a copy of the contract. It would be unchanging. You couldn't change it. It's carved in stone. And I would have one copy. Here's the interesting thing. Um, did you notice that the Jewish people have two copies? It's kind of like 
God went through this whole practice they're used to in making a contract, making a covenant with them. And then he just said to Moses, he said, hey, you know what? Why don't you keep them both? Because I'm not going to forget. Right? You might. You might forget my deliverance and my goodness and my kindness to you and my provision and my protection and my presence, but I'm, I'm, I don't need a copy. And a lot of times when we think about the Ten Commandments, we think about them very differently than ancient cultures would have thought of them. We think of the Ten Commandments, and it's almost synonymous with like the Ten Rules, right? Don't do this, don't do this, do this. But, but it's fascinating when you read the Old Testament. David, you know David, right? King David, he... He sings and celebrates, right? When was the last time you went into your HR department and they said, hey, we've got a new policy. And you're like, yes! Woo! I love rules! Yeah! Right? No, because you see, we see them rules. For them, they they didn't see them as rules. They, They saw them as an invitation. They saw them as a gift of God saying, you know what? I want you to be my people I want to walk with you. I want you to walk with me. And here's how you can do it. It was an invitation to community. It was an invitation to be a part of the family of God. It was an invitation to walk in the presence of God. So we have these symbols. And then on top of it, we have laid on top of it a seat, a cover, the atonement cover the mercy seat that once a year is covered in blood. Why? So that the people of God would be reminded that all the things that are held inside this relationship they have with God is established and covered by blood. The writer of Hebrews is saying like, this is all good, but Jesus is offering us something better than a reminder of a time when he was sufficient than a reminder of a time when he demonstrated his power and his authority, than a time when he offered us this contract that not a one of us are able to keep. The writer of uh, Paul writes in the book of Romans that, that, that the law is good, but you know what the law does? It shows every single one of us how busted and broken we are. The writer of Hebrews, he says this. This is all good, it's all great, but look, look at verse 9. He says this, According, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, right? Bulls, goats, lambs, um, grain, all these things are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food, drink, and various washings, regulations for the body, okay? So, so here's what he's saying, hear him, right? He's saying all these things are good, right? You can smell the smoke. You can see the smoke, You can taste the unleavened bread. They would gather together every single year uh, to celebrate the Passover and they would take unleavened bread and they would break it and they would remind themselves of the manna provided to them in the wilderness. And you could taste it and you could eat it and you could feel it and you'd sing songs and you could recite the Ten Commandments and the law and, and you would sing and celebrate as David did. But all those things, the writer of Hebrews says, all those things were just outside things. Because none of those things, you know this, I know this, none of those things are able to fix what's broken in us. So the writer of Hebrews says, those things were good, but they were just shadows. They were just reminding us that we are broken people who live in a broken world. And then there's this wordplay right at the end, and it's hard to see in English, but I'm going to show you to you in the Greek. It says this, for the body imposed 
until a time of reformation. Now, your translation might say something like new age or new era. That This word here, um, it's a good translation. That they're trying to capture the intent of what the writer of Hebrews is saying, but there's a background behind this word. This Greek word here is used almost exclusively in a medical sense, this reformation, until a time of this thing, almost exclusively in a medical sense. And the medical term is the description of what you do when you reset a broken bone. You see, the, you, see the, you see the play? You see, all these things were good. All these things were great reminders to us, but they were unable to fix the thing that's broken inside of us. And the good news of Jesus, the good news of the gospel is that he's come not just to fix your outside, but to reset the things that are broken in our souls. Let me explain to you this way. There was... Um, there was a um, Messianic Jewish rabbi, right? So a, uh, a guy who was formerly a Jewish rabbi, still considers himself a Jewish rabbi, um, trained as a Jewish rabbi, and, and met Jesus, and he's a follower of Jesus now, right? And he wrote this poem. I'm not going to recite it because it's long, and it's originally in Hebrew, so it wouldn't make any sense, okay? Um, but I want, I want to describe it to you. And he says this. He says, why is it that Jesus must die on a tree? And he said, it is for a tree with which we stole from. Why is it that Jesus' hands were pierced? For it was with our hands that we reached out and grabbed the forbidden fruit. Why were his feet pierced? For it was the, the, the attack of the enemy and the crushing of the enemy that would come through his bruised Heal. Why is it that he was adorned with a crown of thorns? Because all of creation, because of the curse of our sin, thorns would bust up and scream and cry in pain. Why is it that he must be pierced in his side? For the first Adam, from a hole in his side came his bride. So too, with Jesus, the second Adam, came his bride, the church. And the purpose of the poem is to try and remind us that the good news of the gospel, the good news of the message of Jesus is that God is about reversing, healing, fixing broken things in this world. That he takes all of the brokenness and decay of this world and like a good and magnificent healer and physician and doctor, he resets the things that are broken in us. So what's it mean for us? There's, a, there's another spot in Scripture where it talks about um, us being a temple. And, and he says it. He says, remember, um, you, you collectively and you individually are, are temples, that you are a place, that inside you now, no, it's not the smoke of incense, right? Now what dwells inside you is the Spirit, is the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. And that when you enter the room... There's a follower of Jesus that you should, you, should, you should change the scent of the room as the Spirit of God emanates out of you. That you carry inside of you, because of God's mercy and grace, you carry inside you the reminders of his provision, of his protection, and his invitation to community. What it means for you and for me is this. There's no longer a tabernacle for us to go to, for you are the tabernacle. What it means is this, is that you and I are wanderers in a broken, desert, arid 
world desperately in need of the mercy and presence of God. And that everywhere we go, whether you go into your workplace, you go into school, you go into your family, you go in your neighborhood, you go into your community, you are resetting the temposts of your tabernacle in that place so that by your presence, the Spirit of God might fill that place, that people might see and experience the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God. There's this quote, um, by C.S. Lewis, and he says, uh, you have never met a mere mortal. And I love it. I think that's, I think that's an awesome reminder, but I, I, wanna, I wanna make a little twist off of it. Here's what I think the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have never had just another day. Every step you take is an act of carrying the kingdom of God out into a broken and desolate world. Every place you go, you go as a missionary into a broken and desperate world, desperately in need of the mercy and kindness and provision and protection and intimacy of our good God. So you, may you know this week, as you leave this place, as you're here, may you know that the spirit is in you. May you know that as you walk to your workplaces and to your neighborhoods and into your communities and into your schools and amongst your friends and your families that you are bringing the very presence, the promise, and the reminder of God's goodness and mercy everywhere you go. Would you remember that in the midst of an arid, broken, painful, ugly world that Jesus is doing a work He's doing a work of resetting what is broken and he's inviting you to be a part of it.